Salam, salam. Ishtanein Singaye. What's up, everybody? This is Omar. And this is not Nura. Oh, what happened? Hey, everyone. This is uh, this is Weiss. And today we got Weiss on the episode. Weiss and I will be on. Uh, we're going to be rotating hosts on the podcast. So Weiss will be joining us from time to time. So get used to the voice. Um, Weiss is from Los Angeles. He joined the TSN team last year. And unfortunate fact, he's a Los Angeles Lakers fan. How dare you, unfortunate. This is, it's very fortunate. It's a privilege to be a Laker fan. By the way, this is a sports podcast now. I just, I just turned it into one. Gotcha. All right. But, but in all seriousness, uh, so today we have Nilafar Hidayat, who is an Afghan British journalist. She has a Netflix documentary series called The Traffickers, a series on Fusion TV called Food Exposed, basically trying to make us depressed about everything and just really uncovering dark truths that we all pretend to ignore about that we don't want to uh, know yeah seriously uh she's been featured on bbc and channel four and has a new project called the doha debates which we will be talking about yeah no we're really excited to have her she's doing incredibly important work um and we just really wanted to dive into her experience and also really getting a chance to understand her identity of how being a british afghan has influenced her work as a journalist uh, we looked up a lot of stuff and lots of interviews with her really focusing on her work on documentaries and the things that she's done, which is important. But we also wanted to go a little further and hear about the real tough questions like what does her mom think? Uh, and why does some gotcha journalism exposing her very dark and magical past? And we introduce a new segment asking some trivia questions where we get to the hard hitting facts of Afghan singers. So we're excited for you all to join us today. Thank you and uh, look forward to having you. Yeah, enjoy the episode. The Samivar Network. The Network. All right. So um, I don't know. You know, I want to start off with this. I don't know if you actually remember the time. I think it was one of the first times we met. It was, it was actually in L.A. Uh, you came to an iftar dinner um, it, at a pizza place. And I, I remember this so clearly because it was game one of the NBA. And I remember, I remember it so vividly because your back was turned <laughs> to the game. You're probably the only person who had their back turned to the game the whole time. And you could not care less <laughs> about what was going on. Um, I mean... If you were to ask me, was that baseball, basketball, or football, or <laughs> hockey, I would be like, no idea. Absolutely yeah, no clue. But you guys, like- the, my, my, the only memory I have is that all of yous had, like, the sweatiest palms and the most, like, agitated faces. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, these guys really don't like me. <laughs> but I realized yeah, no. it was their sport, stupid. Yeah, because we were all facing the TV, which was directly behind you. So we right. were just staring anxiously as I believe right. that was the game that J.R. Smith didn't call called didn't call a timeout when he should have. Oh, and I think you were talking about. I think you were talking about freaking Jr. Home runs. 
<laughs> grand slams. I think you were you were all over the place in your sports references. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. Listen, if this is going to be a podcast about football or baseball or whatever the heck, then yeah, I'm not your girl. We Surprise. Are. <laughs> yeah, this is actually what this is. <laughs> um, so you had the. I don't know if I should say honor or uh, experience of hanging out with a bunch of Afghans from the U.S., um, but I did want to ask you about being Afghan and growing up in... You grew up in London? That's right. So uh, I just want to ask a little bit about, like, what was that like being... What is it like being Afghan in London or in England? Like, I, I'm so curious about how those experiences are different and how they might be similar. So just tell us a little bit about what was it, what's it like growing up as an Afghan in London? Growing up as an Afghan in London is, from what I've learned in the last few years, very different to the experience that the American diaspora have, um, the American Afghan diaspora have. I think for us, um, my community, and I'm just going to speak from my heart, and, and these are my opinions, so this isn't like the textbook on, on the Afghan-British experience, but for me, it's a far more conservative, um, it's a far smaller community. We don't have the breadth and the depth of like the East and West coasts, coasts and everybody in between. We have a much smaller island, and we are um, sort of very cosily tucked away, I should say, um, in in our experiences. So, of course, Avrons, as we do so effectively, we are spread out throughout the nation, and we're out in Scotland and some in Wales and Northern, Northern Ireland, and I have relatives and cousins who are there. But my particular experience growing up in London town is one of sheer blissful joy. I mean, I grew up in Camden Town, which for your British and London-based listeners means like a thing. It, 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 it denotes a thing. Um, <laughs> I grew up around punks and goths and really sort of down-to-earth normal people, um, along with the likes of your Primrose Hill set with, um, you know, Sienna Miller, um, Pete Doherty, um, Amy Winehouse, those kind of very artsy people around me when I was growing up. Um, I didn't interact with them, but they, they were just the flavor of the area. So um, I grew up very removed from my community in a sense. I only knew just my very immediate family and maybe one or two families that, that we associated with. And that's not atypical um and we didn't have like the big wedding bashes every sort of season or anything like it was a for me and my family for the hidayats anyway it was a very sort of uh, smaller affair so in a sense my avronness comes from my history what my mm. legacy is from my parents so the stories we would tell around the kitchen table learning how to make bouloni and mantu and really adoring my culture and, and my differentness. Of course, all of that was changed after 9-11, as for so many of us. But I was really, my parents, Patuni and Nazir, um, were just so utterly uh, open and accepting of us, um, the four of us kids, that I never, ever was made to feel that I was different or the same as my peers. I never had to worry about Hola John next door, like what the auntie next door has to say about me, nor <laughs> did I have to try to please my very white friends in a sense. So it was like a blissful oasis. It was this very, I couldn't have asked for a better, and we grew up poor, right? I grew up dirt 
poor. Um, so that was probably the best education I've ever had, like learning how to to survive and, and, and to, to grow. As so many um, refugees, it doesn't matter where you come from, experience. Yeah, I do want to follow up on one thing that you said, mentioning that how things changed post 9-11 for you. So I, being in the States, it was, it was definitely a profound change. So it was similar in England as well? Yes, without a doubt. I think that's something, that's a commonality we all share, you know. Um, and like, Weiss, like, I don't know if you remember, but during, I remember when I was in year nine, and I went out because at break time, we would be allowed to go out of school to, to the tuck shops and stuff nearby. So I went out of school and I saw 9-11. I saw the towers coming down almost like on TV or there were at least there was something happening and it was on TV. And since then, like specifically because we were Avron and within the year, the, 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 the ISAF forces and the sort of invasion began. Mm. Like my entire friend group and my experience as a Muslim changed. So I was bullied. Um, there was lots of hostility. The, 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 we had lots of different gang sort of groups of boys in our school. And the white group was very, very particular because I was one of three Afghans in the whole. And, but I was the most outspoken, so I was the most visible. I got bullied for it. And all my sort of Bangladeshi, Somalian, Eritrean, Nigerian friends, um, in the subsequent years became more religious and like decided to like wear the hijab and, um, you know, practice their faith more overtly because they felt their back was against the wall and they were going to be proud of who they were. But my feeling was always, I don't need to prove shit for shit. Like you, felt, you, you discovered right? that that early. It took yeah, me like years like to I, realize <laughs> To be fair, <laughs> to be fair, as a 16 year old, I was, I was, just like a little firecracker. So I was part of the student union. I was doing a lot of the debate courses. I was trying to get our local politicians in the school. I was I was that person, that annoying, greasy-haired child who just would not stop. But 9-11 did shape and change my opinion, not only of the reaction of the external British community towards me, but like almost like how I felt about myself and my community and my, and my religion, it, it did challenge of what I thought and, and knew. And how did you, you said like you, you, you felt like you grew up with a very different Afghan experience from um, others. Like how did you, when did you realize that your experience was different? When someone asked me what Sunni Shia is and I couldn't tell when someone asked me like, and I was like, what the? I had to, like, I was just like, and it wasn't even a Google thing. I was like, what? What's the Sunni Because <laughs> we weren't raised to know. Yeah. You know, right. we weren't raised that way. Our parents, my parents specifically raised me not to, not to be able to tell the difference so that I wouldn't delineate between that Muslim and this Muslim type thing. So that gives you a sense. And, like, especially with the Avron, it's like, I had to learn why, like, I remember someone at a wedding when I finally went to Afghanistan for the first time in 2007, someone said to me at a wedding, like, are you Tajik or Pashtun? I can't tell. I can't tell. I was like, bro, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, That's what thing, is right? that? They just constantly want to guess what you are. <laughs> exactly. And I was like, Indian. <laughs> did that, did that um, quite I'm Indian, which is what I always get in the UK. But like, I didn't know the difference between uh, uh 
Tajik or a Pashtun or a whatever else, you know, Baluchi or whatever. I just didn't know the difference. So that gives you like a flavor of how I was raised. I was raised not to see difference, but but to kind of, my parents were more keen in uniting that my Afghan identity than they ever were sort of trying to tell me which one is better. Have you ever checked in with them as to as to why they did that? Yeah, it was a very conscious decision by my mother. Um, I think because of, you know, what happened in Afghanistan when she was a kid and, 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 and what's happening in the last, you know, 10, 20 years. Like, I just don't think she, I think she wanted to see, I think she wanted her children to have a sense of being Avron rather than from Paktia or Kabul or wherever, or Medina or whatever else, like, my parents were very, very, my mum specifically was just, just knew the hurt, the hatred, the loss, the death, the destruction that that kind of jingoism or tribalism brings. And I think she very, very um, clearly steered us away from that. And that's for all my siblings, to be honest. Yeah. I, um, oh, no, I was going to say, like, I had similar experiences growing up, too, of, like, not really discussing those. And I and I wonder how much of that is also, like, they never had to think about it, right? Because they were part of the majority. Like, nobody, like, they, they did their looks and the way they, they grew up in Kabul, and they didn't look any different than the people that they were surrounded by. So, um, yeah, so I, I've always wondered about that, too. And I've started to, I similarly just started, started to discover that, like, much later on in my life about how big of a deal that was, especially after 9-11. Like, I was like... I never, I never even knew that question mattered or cared, but right, exactly. It, 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 wait, is this a thing I should know? I don't know. And so you said you, uh, what was you went to Afghanistan? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that experience and what that was like? Sure, I've because um, I'm a documentary maker. I make films and documentaries all over the world. But the first film I ever got to make, I was still in my um, final year at university, and I got this gig, this commission. Um, and the inspiration behind wanting to make a documentary in Afghanistan was my trip the year previously to Afghanistan, uh, a couple of years previously to Afghanistan, for the first time. Um, so the 2000, so Afghanistan in 2007 isn't what it is now. It was very, very much in the throes of a of a invasion. You know, ISAF forces everywhere. There was death and destruction, and you know, it was a difficult, tumultuous time. Um, and I knew none of it because all I saw was plates of palau and friggin' wedding after wedding after wedding. Um, but I, I have this this, and I know. Both of you, or otherwise, you're going to totally get this. But when I'm in Afghanistan, I feel very British. And when I'm in Britain, I feel very Afghan. Yeah, actually, you know what? I do want to ask. So there's a quote that I actually I wrote down from one of your documentaries, um, Food Exposed on Fusion. Fusion, That's right? That's right. Yes. Fusion TV. Um, and you said, and I like this quote. It's, I was born in a third world country, but conditioned in a first world one. Mm. So do you feel like, was that something that you discovered when you were in Afghanistan or did you always know that? No, I didn't know, always know that. I when, when Afghanistan first got into the news in this, in this, like in the time it takes for a bit of electricity goes from one sign up to the other. Right. I was like, Ooh, people will know where I'm from. Like, <laughs> It's not a nothing place in the middle of nowhere. Oh, look at that. Afghanistan is in the headline. Like, this really macabre, like, 
deathly part of my brain was like, we're on the map, people. Um, but the other, you know, when everything started to happen after 2011, um, my... It, it's almost like I all of a sudden inhaled this cold, sharp, painful breath of history, right? So in, in, in just one breath, I, I felt the collective pain. Um, I saw the, the death on death on death on death, the destruction. And more harrowingly, I saw the manipulation of what was happening there in the Western narrative. And um, as, as often happens to us who live in the global north, what we hear about the global south is very skewed and is told through lots of different lenses. So this thing would happen where I'd be at home in my cozy house with my mum and we'd be watching TV and we've got food on the table and everything's fine. And we'd turn on like Tolo TV or Oriana TV and like we'd watch a news report, right? And it's just devastating. Like, it just rattles your bones with fear, sadness, and anxiety, right? And then I'd watch the news at 10 on the BBC, and it would be like, also in today's news, 300 people killed in Afghanistan. Mm. Now, to the sport. And I'm like, how is this real? Which one is true? Which one is true? Either it means nothing or 300 people died, or, or, or are they valuable or valued? So that's my, that, that was my Western kind of like coming, coming to understand my history. But even before that, like I didn't come to the UK as a baby. You know, I, we, I was born in Kabul. I lived in Shaheen town in Peshawar in Pakistan for a little while. We tried to make it in Saudi. Don't ask me why, my mom's weird head. Um, <laughs> that didn't work, we came back to Pakistan. Um, and then finally, when I was like seven, eight years old, that's when we came to the UK. So in a sense, like my childhood was in the third world. Like we lived with very little and nothing. So it's really hard for me to like explain like the different iterations of my historic and religion. But now that I'm 31 and um, according to my mother, passed my sell-by date, um, <laughs> like it really... like. <laughs> Like it really doesn't matter to me. I embrace my, I, I embrace the beautiful parts of my culture, heritage, and religion, and the bits I have a problem with. I'm able to stand up and be like, "That's not right." Um, do you ever find that being, whether it's being an Afghan or even just specifically being a woman, do you think that actually gives you access to certain spaces that you might not have had otherwise? And I'm included. And with that, I'm talking about spaces like locations when you do your reporting and things like that oh, that's a very nuanced question it's a very good question exactly like my first ever film the way i broke into the industry 11 years ago was i made a film about women in afghanistan being a woman from afghanistan so to be fair like um it was all, like you know it, it absolutely opened doors literally for me and i was able to get access to a lot of female spaces and a lot of um you know, um, be able to enter all these domains that men traditionally wouldn't, and certainly white women or white men or Western women um, wouldn't. And I, and I always struggle with my identity as a Western woman and what that means. But to 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 as well as they could tell in my Farsi and in my um, in the way that I was able to communicate with them, they welcomed me and loved me and cherished me, and I. For 
ever owe everything to them. These, these people that whose homes I went to, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've run a class for kids in my old secondary school, right? High school. And I go in there. Yeah, sort thanks. Of thanks thanks for translating it for us American Yankees. <laughs> Just keeping it American. Um, so I, I run this class um, and it's called um, Your USP. The idea being that I try to give, give these 15-year-old immigrant kids the sense that the very thing that troubles you and gives you anxiety and worries you is your most valuable tool. You know, mm. your immigrantness and your brownness and your eyes like that and your hair like this and your hijab like this or whatever else, that is, that opens gateways into universes that others can't access. So use it. Like, don't don't worry about it. Like, be let that be the thing that guides your strength rather than becomes your weakness. So I've been doing that for like 10 years. Um, so yeah, absolutely, being a woman, brown, um, and being Avron and multilingual has opened doors, numerous doors, innumerable ones. Do you feel like that also gives you agency for yourself as well, where you're like kind of as you're giving that information to other people, you're sort of reinvesting it in yourself as well? Yeah, you know what? A girl needs to be told she's doing all right sometimes, and mostly by herself. Like, one of the negative things I think I've inherited from my Afghan community is this sense of, like, extreme um, need to perform and to do well. Like, we're all, you know, laced in this, in, in, we're glazed in this need to perform um, as as young Avrons, and it could be great, but it can also present itself in a very like toxic way. So one of the problems that I have is that I I, I can't sell for second best. I can't. I've, I've, I struggle to not achieve something. Like for example, I couldn't get kit together for tomorrow. Um, Kit high to get. So I'm now contemplating whether I drive to Birmingham or not. Like it's these kind of like insane um, uh, standards that we set ourselves. And that that is something. So when I'm in the classroom and I've, there's a like beautiful cherub looking 15 year old babies in front of me, like I adore being able to empower them and they in turn empower me. And have you kind of on the flip side, have you felt ever felt that being an Afghan, being an Afghan woman has um, held you, prevented you from access from certain spaces or kind of held you back in some ways? Oh, man, if I'm really honest with you, like I would never be able to describe myself as an Avron woman because mm. that is that I would I, I can't stand in their shadow. I can't. Like, I wouldn't be able to. Um, I'm a Western Avron woman, which is a very different, I guess, breed. So, so I, as much as I wish to God that I could, in a way, be able to help and, and support that community, I can only do so much as a very Westernized. And I absolutely take the liberty with my with my westernness like i adore being british it's my favorite thing i love it i adore being <laughs> afghan it's my other favorite thing so I, I i think a lot of us um in, in in the diaspora community and this goes for my sudanese friends and this goes for my pakistani friends and my bengali friends you know we all 
struggle with these very, very different identities, right? And most often what they do is clash and we hate it and we're like, brownness, I hate it. But I think one of the things that you learn with time is that they both make you. And if you aren't one, then you're not the other. So in my 20s, like I hated my 20s. I I really hated it because I was this outspoken, um, sort of very liberal, you know, pro-LGBTQ, pro, uh, you know, you name it. I was a yellow, lily-livid liberal. I just, I just wanted everyone to be happy and find love and all this lot, right? But also I had very, I'm a Muslim, so like I adhere to a lot of the tenets of Islam. So these two really like difficult identities were fighting. And in the end, like I turned 29 and I was like, I can't, I'm never going to be able to solve or resolve these issues in the world. So I just need to resolve and solve it in myself. I'm both. And that's that. I think, yeah, coming to that realization is like a really powerful moment. And like, it's, uh, it's actually very liberating. Cause you're like, it's okay that I'm not like, I'm not, hella afghan as i think i actually am like i went when i went to turkey the first time i was like damn i am like my friend he told me he's like you wearing a backwards hat and baggy jeans he's like don't ever call yourself afghan (laughs) right exactly (laughs) right i was like okay you have a point there um but um can we get photos of that by the way Um, all right. So, uh, you know, we, we kind of touched a little bit on the journalism aspect. So I am, we are curious, um, what, what got you into that road? What made you decide to be a journalist? And if you can describe sort of that process. Yeah, I wanted to be a journalist since I was 15. So that's like 16 years ago now. Um, I, my, my, my main intention was I had a really big mouth and I like to speak. Um, so the main the main kind of push was to be able to articulate a voice. And the way it all started off uh, was that um, I would do a lot of these. You, you must have them in the US, right? These radio shows where you call in and you just shout at people. Yes. You do. We still do. <laughs> <laughs> right? So these like... Although they're not the same. I feel like British the British culture of like yelling at each other for being such a passive group of folk. You then watch like the, you know, their, their government, right. the, the parliamentary debates and things like that. Yeah. They, you guys really let loose pretty. Oh my pretty... goodness. You have no idea. Fists fly figuratively speaking. Of course. Um, but yeah, no, exactly. And, and, I was always an orator. I liked public speaking. I enjoyed articulating thoughts. Um, and I, to be to be really frank with you, you know, why not? I did. I used to do this show on the BBC Asian Network, and it was the only show that would book me. And I was like, what the hell is this? I'm. I don't just represent a British Asian experience. I represent a British experience. So why am I not on BBC One and BBC Three and So when I was like in my first year of university, I started to do all these like talk shows, like, you know, uh, tea, chai, 
what do you think? For or against? And I'd like hash it out with someone on air. Like it was just ludicrous. You were and also, then, did, did you also do a trivia, a Harry Potter trivia? That, that's a thing. That's a thing you, you did, how right? How dare you Google me, sir? How dare you? <laughs> Look, I do my research, okay? I want to I wanna be good at my job. <laughs> oh I mean, I'm asking the real questions here. God, why is that so embarrassing? Stop it. It was for charity. It was for charity, okay? Yes, Harry Potter was my mastermind specialist subject. Yes, I am a Harry Potter nerd. Yes, I have met them all. I've been to, like, Harry Potter land or whatever. Sue me. This, is, this is what people in your field call gotcha journalism. <laughs> I am um, nailed to that wall behind me right there. You got me. You really did. That's embarrassing. Uh, yes. I did. But that, that's kind of like the fun side of what I do. Like my bread and butter is foreign foreign events and war atrocities. I did a whole series on the Arab Spring. I cover Afghanistan a lot. Um, I made a series on traffickers, which is available on Netflix right now across the world. You know, right, my actually, idea- I do have a question on that one. And so I watched some of those. Um, and there was an episode where you go to a transplant hospital uh, yes. pretending that I think you said your mom was sick. Or, right. Yes. And you yeah, had well, like a apparently she had, well, in the story she had, um, end stage renal failure. Yes. And you go with like a hidden camera. Is that the craziest thing you've done as a journalist or have you done, is that like a common occurrence for you? I've been in gunfights. Does that count? Like, yeah, yeah. you know, that's, that's look, it, like when Gaddafi was caught, I was in CERT um, like two weeks later or when Misrata was launching the battle, we were there in in, in Tahrir Square and, um, you know, I've been, I've met people who traffic in sex and children and um, met their bosses. I've, I've been in San Salvador and El Salvador and met like gun traffickers and so and how does your mom think of all this? Yeah, I really right. want to know that question. Do you know what's hilarious? Like, me and my mother reached the truth. Don't ask, don't tell. But you're on TV. She's like, how do you How do you not tell? Right. She just doesn't ask anymore. I think she realizes, I mean, this is the beauty of having, like, a really progressive, open-minded. I mean, my mom prays five times a day. Um, she adores her faith and relies on it heavily, but she also knows that her kids need to be themselves. So my mom's entire thing is go and be good people. Go, go off into the world and and do your best to to do good. So this is my interpretation of that, bringing the voices of people who generally don't have the power to do it themselves to the fore is like, uh, you know, I'm not even going to say this in in an abashed way. It's my calling. It's the thing that I get up in the morning to do. And obviously there's a lot of emotional and physical baggage that comes with it, but it's a price I'm like more than happy to pay. It doesn't bother me at all. So. Um, has she seen the actual episodes? <laughs> yes. She's no, she them. hasn't. Shh, sh- sh- she doesn't know. <laughs> <laughs> She's probably going to be like, what do you mean? I have renal failure. <laughs> She's going to be like, Oh my God, you used me like this. Nilofar. We are law. <laughs> She's just gonna like go in. Um, yeah, but you know that like that particular episode you're talking about, like the beauty of the kind of journalism that I do, which is called an immersive journalistic style. Um, it's this very, it's, it's this very open style. Like I'm not standing there with my khaki pants on, telling you what for that the brown people say. Like this is like 
I embed myself, my life, my opinions, my feelings in the stories. And, you know, whilst the, the episode you're talking about, I go in there with very firm ideas. I come out of there with my entire mind changed in the space of two hours. So, you know, that's the kind of ground I'm trying to break. I'm trying to make it okay for young women of color to have opinions and we don't have to be the archetypal, you know, man stands in front of camera says stuff. It's also nice because you kind of show that like as a woman, particularly a woman of color, like, shoot, I can go, I can go be an undercover. Like I can, I can be in the firing lines. I can, I can do these things. Yeah, but why not, right? Like, literally, like, I still don't... No one's been able to answer that question for me. Like, why not? Like, it's just... It's absolutely... So one of the one of the greatest joys of my existence is sometimes whenever I wake up and I get little messages on Twitter or Instagram or whatever else, and it's young girls, and they say something like, Nila Fad, I saw your documentary or whatever, and... Uh, you've really moved me and you've shown me that I can do anything I want in, and, and I can achieve whatever I want. And I'm thankful for the, that you did this and I can do what I want to do. And when you, when, you, when you read one of those messages sent with the greatest sincerity and openness from a kid who, whose mind or perspective you changed, there is no... There is no award or accolade or title anyone can bestow upon you that is more life-affirming and, like, gratifying than those little, like, Insta messages or whatever. Like, that, to me, is so satisfying. And, and it just, I, I beam with joy that, that this young girl knows that she can because she's seen that it, it can be done. That is just just intoxicating and your your journalism is is really empowering and powerful and I, I my question is do you feel like you when you're when you're making these documentaries when you're making these reports do you feel like there's an answer a specific answer that you're advocating for like are there times where you're trying to get a specific answer and are there times where there's not I'm always looking for an answer that you have to, like, you can't go into a situation and be like, let's see where this conversation ends. Like if I'm speaking to somebody who I know has committed a crime or has been involved in a crime or is a criminal in some way, then I know how to approach that in order to get, to get that on camera. Um, if I'm talking to a rape victim or someone who's been sexually abused or trafficked or, uh, a young girl who's run away from home or whatever else, I know how to talk to her as well. But I'm, I'm a journalist first and foremost, and I need to construct a narrative arc in order for us to turn this into television. So, yeah, I very much am determined to, to kind of use... What, okay, so, so I have this guy I look up to, like, in TV, and there are very few of them, but this, like, amazing, amazing, amazing um, executive producer called Keith Sumer, who I have had, like, the life privilege of working with. And Keith Sumer said to me, Nilafad, remember that when you are stood there 
and you're talking to that person, think of what it has taken to get you and that person to meet. The amount of money, resources, flights, hotels, negotiations, calls. And on their part, the risk they're taking, right? To be in front of a camera and talk to you. Now, he said two things, and I'm going to swear now, so you can beat this. He said, number one, don't Oh, God. (laughs) That's his number one thing. Do not. And his number two thing is, you owe the audience to ask the hard questions. Hmm. So... Any situation, whether I'm talking to, like, I talk to celebrities or, I guess, um, high-profile people, whether it's Malala Yousafzai or, or J.K. Rowling or whoever else, or whether it's, it is a young woman who has been imprisoned or a young man who's been involved in, in something criminal or whatever else, um, my job is to elicit what the audience needs to hear, and that always is a hard question to answer. And um, one of the new projects that you're, uh, sounds like you're working on is the Doha Debates. So can you tell yes. us a little bit about that? Oh, my goodness. I am so thrilled. So as you guys know, like I've been doing documentary making and TV stuff for 11 years. And sort of towards the end of last year, I became a little disenfranchised with the whole news media scene. I'm just like... There are so many voices and so many facts that I'm kind of bored of it all. So I've decided this year to take a step back and I'm the correspondent for the Doha debates. I'm working with a remarkable team headed by um, a Palestinian American called Amjad Atala and I work with a very diverse group of people and we are strewn across the world from Doha to Amsterdam to London, New York, DC, California, you know, LA um, and, our main kind of, so our motto, the thing that we are trying to live up to is do not settle for a divided world. Hmm. All we ever see on television and in these debate shows is emotion, someone arguing for, against, and it's like, fight, you know. There's no cohesive thought or context afforded. So we at the Doha Debates are adopting a brand new, beautiful majlis, or Jirgas style of debate, right? So we are solutions-based debate show. And I'll be there on the debates. We have seven of them throughout the year and early into next year. We're tackling things like loss of faith, uh, artificial intelligence, the refugee crisis, the water crisis, um, what it means to be a global citizen. We're going to gender and sexuality. All of these things are things we're going to be tackling head on um, in Doha, in a Wahhabi Muslim country. And it's a global show we are hoping to go to south africa and kerala and ireland and the whole point of it is to bring these diverse voices into a room and not shout at each other (laughs) so not afghan tv (laughs) yeah i don't know if i'm in i don't know if i'm in i I need my shouting matches Exactly. Take out on TV, move us as far away from that as like physically possible. And that's where we reside. But, you know, like we, we say that and, and I'm desperately proud of what we're trying to do at the Doha debates. And I'll be having my own podcast and doing a lot of the digital shorts. But, you know, in, Af- in Afghanistan, we've got Zan TV, which is just starting up, which is just an astonishing um, ambitious program. Like this idea of a TV channel run by women in front of and behind the camera displaying an array of feminine 
and female voices and perspectives, like from the tomboy to the most femme of femmes. It's just, I'm inspired by it, you know, and um, on my Instagram, which is at nelifer.h, like I will do everything I can to promote these girls to and young women to have a voice and do what they can um, to give them that space. I mean, such an exciting time to be young and a millennial and a woman of color that I just feel like this decade is ours for the taking. Great. That's, that's awesome. That's awesome. So, you know, we had, we had our, our, our interview. It's been, it's been really lovely having you now, now, now we're here having the good stuff. So we are actually premiering something with you, which is a trivia game that we are going to be hosting with, uh, with our guests. Go on. Since you are the first one, you're going to be the top of the leaderboard right now. But Yay! You... I'm the winner! <laughs> no, that's not how it works. All right, no. But anyway. This so isn't Harry Potter trivia, sorry. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know how to do Harry Potter no trivia because I don't... how brutal it gets in the Harry Potter forums, okay? You're mad, you have no idea. Yeah, do you still get Harry Potter, like, Twitter heads, Twitter eggs, just yelling at you for getting some some of the questions wrong. Like this one question that I will never live down, which was, "What does spew stand for?" And it's the Society for the Promotion of Elfish Welfare. But I think I said the Society for the Protection of Elfish Welfare, and everyone on Twitter and Instagram is like, "You idiot! How could you not know what spew?" <laughs> Why is one of those people there in the first place? <laughs> I'm, I, I am definitely like, what is she saying? <laughs> yeah, the YouTube video has a new comment, by the way. No, spoiler <laughs> alert. It's... Okay, so um, so the way okay, we're going to do ready. this is you're going to have you're going to have five seconds to answer each of these questions. Okay. <clears throat> All right. Are you ready? Yeah, yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready. Go, go, go. Okay. Yo, you got really into it. I think she got the first question <laughs> no, wrong. Is that the first question? Am I winning? <laughs> yeah, no, she's. <laughs> For the record, since this is an audio medium, you should know that I think her teeth were clenched, ready to answer these questions. Just for the audience's benefit, I was sat here with like an intense stare into the Skype screen, just going, give it to me, man. Come on, let's take this off. All right. So question one. Yeah. Uh, What is the capital of Afghanistan? Um, Kabul. All right. So far, so good. Question two. (laughs) What is the capital of England? London. Oh man, you were two for two. Uh, name an ingredient in cobbly rice. Uh, carrots. All right. So Yay, far, so good. I'm on a roll. <laughs> All right. Question four. If you had one power, what would it be? The ability to fly or to be invisible? My goodness. The age old question. Oh my God. Um, I would be invisible because flying. That is Let me tell you, if, if anyone's ever skydived or bungee jumped, that shit gets cold very quickly, and I just don't have the stamina for it. So I would be invisible and, like, try to get in on, like, the G20 summits or, like, you know, when everyone goes off so to, nerdy. like... so nerdy. Right? It's so nerdy. It's such the a journalist G20 thing. summit, like, that's what you want. to the Oval Office and see if he genuinely eats McDonald's for dinner. Um, but I would be invisible 100%. Yeah, for sure. The ability to fly, you'll get yourself in trouble, like, immediately. People will see you flying. It's ridiculous. Correct. I don't know why anyone... Because you're not right, invisible anyway. whilst you're flying. All right, so better singer, Naim Popal or Habib Qadri? Yolo. You you're asking me to play tribalistic games here. You gotta you gotta pick, you gotta pick, you got oh three god. seconds left. Oh my god, I don't 
Just guess. I'm out. I'm out. I'm not doing this. Oh, my wow. All right. Me. All right. That, that's that's one wrong so far. All right. Oh. Habib Qadri. Okay, next question. Habib Qadri or Noel Gallagher from Oasis? Have I what? Noel Gallagher? It's Habib Qadri or Noel Gallagher from Oasis. What? Noel Gallagher, without a shadow of a doubt. Are you what? kidding me? I am so sorry. It's Habib Qadri. <laughs> next question. Habib Qadri or... Future, who just dropped out a very, very good album. I'm assuming it's Habib Qadri, because, like, there seems to be a theme to these questions. <laughs> no, actually, the answer this time. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm terrible at this. Oh, my All God. Right. Bigger right. political mess right now. The U.S. government shutdown or Brexit? A U.S. American shutdown. You guys are, like, hurting people's lives. No. I'm sorry. It's incorrect. Brexit. <laughs> it's been going on for, like, years now. Who is the adjudicator? I would like to make a complaint. <laughs> All right, you go to you go out uh, to eat, and you have the option between a free appetizer or a free dessert. Which do you pick? Free dessert. That is correct. Yes, I'm back in the game. Woo-hoo. All right, last question: Soy mm-hmm. Oshak or Soy Mantu? Which do you pick? Oh, John, Obacha. Oh God, <laughs> Oshak, Oshak, always Oshak, anytime. Ah, we're going to have to deliberate with this one. Omar, what do you think? Even soy? Maybe, okay, maybe that's the only time when it's actually edible. Yeah, it's the best. What are you talking about? You've never had my Oshak. I make the meanest Oshak. It's delicious. You boys are welcome whenever you're in London town. Thank you so much, Nilofar. We are so thankful to have you on, and we're going to take you up on that offer sometime, hopefully. Bahad, of course. Yes. Next time you're taking your time. Yeah, you're in in Cali, in DC, or anything. Please let us know. We'll happy to hang out with you and see you and say hi. So thank you again for taking the time for us. It's my absolute pleasure. You guys have been amazing. It's been good fun. Thank you, Nilafar.